Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 269, and today's guest is Ryan Begin, co-founder and CEO of Divert. I need to provide some statistics to really set the stage for this week's podcast. Did you know that, point number one, supermarkets waste $25 billion of food every year? Point number two, 63 million tons of food is wasted every year in the U.S. Point number three, one-third of all food produced in the U.S. ends up in a landfill, and all this is a $400 billion problem. That's definitely staggering to hear, and obviously a massive problem that needs to be solved. Luckily, this world has brilliant entrepreneurs who think differently and are able to address these complex problems. In the case of Divert, they are tackling this key issue for supermarkets and retailers. Divert works with five Fortune 100 companies and more than 5,200 retail stores across all 50 U.S. states, providing technology, logistics, and anaerobic digestion facilities to help retailers reach their sustainability goals. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a deep discussion focused on the food waste issue that I previously mentioned, Ryan's background story working at Raytheon and what this experience taught him, the founding story of Divert and what led him down the path of starting the company, all the details on what they are doing and how they are working to transform the food industry into a zero-waste sector, Ryan's lessons learned on hiring executives, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $0 a month. That's free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Ryan. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. I'm excited to talk to you because there's a lot going on in the world and your company is in this intersection of food tech meets clean tech. And we're going to talk a lot about Divert and how it's really helping solve a key issue. And to set the stage, I want to talk about the, the actual problem that you're helping solve. We're not going to talk about the solution of how you guys actually solve it yet. But I just, when I saw this number, I was like, you got to be kidding me. This is a crazy number. So supermarkets waste $25 billion of food every year. Yeah. Wow. So break that well, down I, for me. That's insane. So I'll, I'll even go, if I, if I may, I'll, I'll go broader. Please. 63 million tons of Oof. wasted food every year in the U.S. A third of all food we produce ends up in the landfill in the U.S. That is a wow. $400 plus billion dollar problem. Oh, my. We're kind of picky eaters in the U.S. I guess. Well, so, yeah, what what is our problem? Uh, well, so if you look at if you look at wasted food in the developed world versus the underdeveloped world, it is really mm -hmm. the complete opposite. In the underdeveloped world, uh, you don't have great harvesting technologies, you know, access to large industrial farm equipment. You don't have farm pre-cool uh, advanced manufacturing techniques. So a lot of the wasted food in the underdeveloped world happens earlier in the process. They are less finicky uh, with what they consume. If you go to the developed world, it's the complete opposite. We can get amazing 
you know, consistently sized, beautiful tomatoes to the end of the supply chain retailers. Uh, but we're pretty picky. If there's a little blemish on that tomato, I'm going to skip it. I'm going to go to the next one. So retailers then adopt those same behaviors uh, to drive, you know, to really feed the consumer. Man, that's a crazy, crazy number when you hear about it. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear more of how you guys are approaching and solving this problem because obviously we've set the stage for a very big, big problem. But let's rewind the clock first. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a child? Uh, I grew up in Sabatis, Maine. I would say inquisitive. Uh, building things was was always fascinating to me. And yeah, I just think just sort of a a purpose of doing something greater than than just myself was was always my objective. Uh, engineering for me was, you know, I go back to my eighth grade yearbook. It was be an electrical engineer. I was a little bit odd in that, in that, in that. That's impressive at eighth, in eighth grade to know that, okay, that's, and you went on to, to study that at Clarkson. I did. And, you know, I think just kind of getting my, being the first in my entire extended family to, to attend college, uh, new experience and, you know, going to Clarkson more of a blue collar type engineering school, more hands-on uh, things like uh, solar car were fantastic, uh, great opportunity. And, you know, actually another uh, person on solar car team went on to found uh, ESS, which is an energy storage company here in the U.S. So we were both on Clarkson solar car together, which is really cool. And, you know, I think from there going on to Proton Energy Systems, uh, which is now Nell Hydrogen, kind of kicking off that the hydrogen economy in 2001 uh, that was co-founded by a Clarkson alum as, as well. So um, definitely had the, you know, this, this passion for renewable energy, building things, kind of looking at efficiencies, uh, sustainability. And then, so to, you kind of set the stage for getting your career started at Proton Energy Systems. And then from there, you went to work at Raython. What did you do there? Uh, well, you know, I think coming out of Proton Energy Systems in the early phase, I was probably around employee 26. They had just IPO'd. They had massive amounts of capital available to them. Uh, very small team of about five people. Uh, incredible learning experience. We, I, I led the installation of our first uh, PEM electrolyzer. So the first probably zero carbon hydrogen uh, installed in Barth, Germany. We were fueling the first fuel cell bus, which was going through some German uh, parks. And that experience, and then you bring that into Raytheon, I don't know that it could be more opposite. You know, the design principles when you go to build a billion-dollar radar system, the approach, you know, the rigor behind engineering, uh, very different than the very fast-paced proton energy systems. So, uh there's a there's a there's a sort of this dichotomy of, you know, living in that entrepreneurial world. And when I was at Raytheon, you know, I kind of challenged the the processes, maybe uh, got in trouble as a square peg in a round hole. But fantastic experience for me. It, it made me a better engineer. No question. Would you work on there? So uh, the beginning of my career on Cobra Judy, which is a radar based uh, ship based radar system. Uh, on science, I'm sorry, on the systems test and design, moving on to the early warning radar systems. So 
running labs uh, where we had, you know, strung together, we would call it the string, strung together critical components of the radar, running simulations, uh, building algorithms. Uh, so I was responsible for, for that lab and uh, the activity in the lab. Got it. All right. So how did you get involved in like, so you kind of, you worked at a, you know, a smaller company, then you went to the complete opposite at Raytheon, but then went off to, to start your own company. So how did that all come together? So applying to business schools, uh, this was my second round of applying to business schools, rejected from, from all of them. And uh, I knew where I wanted to be, which is, you know, become a leader within a clean tech renewable energy business. Uh, I knew that the I valued my experience at Raytheon, knew that I wanted to get back into, you know, more hands on building um, fully engrossed in, in product and really trying to solve that problem. So met a met some folks uh, tangential to some other folks that I knew at Raytheon and uh, introduced to the concept of food waste in, in grocery stores. My experience at Proton Energy Systems was sort of a dovetail fit to what we were looking at uh, on how to approach wasted food and food waste. So producing renewable natural gas or, or biogas, uh, very close to what we were doing with PEM electrolyzers, producing hydrogen gas. And, uh, you know, that small scale form factor uh, at Proton Energy Systems, it's more of a distributed type model. And then bringing that into uh, what at the time was was feed resource recovery. So I was a pretty good fit from an engineering, uh, me and uh, two other individuals, uh, Nick Whitman, uh, who is currently still with the business today and a critical part of, of Divert. Uh, him and another individual were the business side of that. I was the engineering side. And, you know, I think we, we started to explore what would it mean to solve food waste for grocery stores and um you know had initially a really terrible idea uh, that's exactly where i was gonna go so what was the original idea because <laughs> i yeah, know so probably, the original <laughs> there always has to be at least one pivot absolutely uh, so the original idea was we were going to put a a system we'll call it a system behind a grocery store and replace the trash compactor so the system was uh, anaerobic digestion. So anaerobic digestion is a naturally occurring biological process where if you feed it something that, you know, food, carbohydrates, so things that contain carbon, uh, the bugs, the bacteria will consume that in an oxygen-free environment and they will naturally produce methane gas with, with some carbon dioxide. You can take that gas and then you can you can burn it. You can consume it as you know as you would any other uh, fuel. Uh, when you remove the carbon dioxide, it's actually equivalent to natural gas. It's the same thing from a molecule basis. So, so I, this is why I wanted <laughs> to talk to you. Like, how did you know that? Like, when I heard what you just explained, I'm like, I, how do you know that? I had no idea. I, well, I had no idea. Uh, we I, I probably downloaded and read a hundred papers on anaerobic digestion. We were calling on university professors uh, from University of Florida, University of Maine, my alma mater, uh, and, and trying to understand what was reality. This is, you know, circa 2008. Um, you know, the internet isn't what it was back 
today what it was back then. You know, I think we're, we're really trying to dig deep. I'm not trying to date myself too much, but it really required uh, physical trips. You know, we, we, we did go to Europe. Uh, we did look at what advanced technology looked like there, but nobody was really digesting, you know, processing just food waste with anaerobic digestion. Because how do you get an idea like this started, right? Because it's not like, oh, we're going to spin up a, a website as an MVP and see if there's any interest and then we'll pivot or uh, you know evolve. Like this is, you got to find an early adopter and then there's a lot of complex engineering that goes behind building something like this. So it definitely starts with the early adopter. I, I think really understanding the problem that we were solving rather than the technology. So it wasn't a technology in search of a solution. It was, here's the problem. There is lots of wasted food. Uh, job number one, how do we keep this out of landfill? How do we do something better with it? Uh, how do we rescue the nutrients? How do we use the energy that can be produced naturally? And, you know, when you start working through the problem, anaerobic digestion uh, was a technology. Composting is a, you know, has its own uh, technology, animal feed and production of animal feed. So, you know, we evaluated all of these things. And being honest with ourselves that we are agnostic, uh, you know, until you're not, uh, which meant that we went through that process to explore and find the right solution. That led us to anaerobic digestion. When looking at the science behind that, you know, reactor design, uh, pre-processing technologies, I think it's this, this technical study. It's this, you know, this is where I go back to my Raytheon days and going through what is systems engineering, picking apart everything, mass producing mass balance and flow charts and descriptions and just sort of challenging uh, the reliability of equipment, the design of equipment and putting everything back together as a systems integrator. So not trying to reinvent any one thing, but combining things in a novel way to, to make it our own uh, and make it scalable. So how'd you find your first customer that was willing to, you know, Hey, we've got this problem and we want to partner up to help solve it. So that first customer came through uh, a networking of family members and contacts, and you get the opportunity to make the pitch. I think, you know, this is still true today where, you know, we approach customers and we work with very large customers. We're fortunate enough to have five Fortune 100 companies. We have never lost a customer in 15 years. And it's, it's you know, empathy, uh, listening, and producing solutions that are reliable and, and simple to use. I think when we when we approach it in this way, uh, same thing with that first customer, uh, you get their attention. Uh, I think being believable, you know, having conviction, um, all of that sort of comes, brings itself together in landing that first contract. And it was, it was a customer writing us a check for nearly half a million dollars upfront so paid in full, we delivered, we hadn't delivered anything. Um, you know, that was a, that was an amazing customer. So finding that right, you said early adopter, that's an early adopter. And because did you try to get funding for this initially? Or was it like, listen, we're going to find a customer and do, you know, build the company that way through partnering up with customers and, and revenue uh, versus getting funding from the outside? I, we set out to to raise capital. We did have an angel investor that said, "Go get a customer, and then I'll come in, you know, for a million dollars." A million dollar 
Angel Rays back in 2008 was a was a big round big deal. I mean, that's a big deal. Now yeah, <laughs> now it's nothing. <laughs> it's uh, like 13 million dollar <laughs> Angel round. I'm like, what? Really? Is that really Angels? When? See, uh, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> so you know that uh, finding the investment a uh, million dollars on top of you know roughly the half million that we got from our first customer, I would say a a a challenge for the business. We boot we bootstrap for like the first fifteen years. You know we're in year like sixteen right now. Um, so just recently we we raised a, a larger sum of capital. The you know I I do think being customer financed has has helped us make a lot of strategic decisions and you know as you work as we work through that process with customers to better understand them and the problem uh, it really forced us to deliver top class solutions because we had to get paid in order to continue the business and who's the the buyer for this is there somebody that heads up like waste within supermarkets so there are, you know, it depends on 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 the chain, but it can be, you know, facilities groups, store operations. Um, when we look at working with a new retailer, I think it's understanding their organization. How do they make decisions? Who owns? Who owns that budget line item? Who owns the problem today? Is really how we think about that. And and then it's it's understanding the specifics of that retailer. How does their logistics network work? What are the store uh, operations that they have, you know, do they cut fruit in the store or are they doing that in a remote location? Uh, what markets do they operate in? Uh, are they regulated? How regulated? And then we can put together a package for that retailer uh, that solves the immediate problem, you know, that sort of on the nose problem of wasted food, uh, but then go deeper and offer them, you know, these additional services that just hopefully make their job easier. Because is it like fast forward to today, is this something that I would imagine has to be highly customized based on each company and how they, like you said, like how are they conducting their business in terms of the the food? And so is this like, are there elements that are you know reusable because this is the problem we're solving, but customized based on each customer's unique situation? Um. They're all selling food. Uh, there are only so many ways to move food and, and market merchandise food, sell food. Um, so there are a lot of practices. And actually, those are some of the benefits that we bring is we do get the opportunity, this cross-cutting opportunity across many very large businesses to see best in class. Here, well, here's here's another way to approach that problem as, you know, as we work with customers. And we take some of our lessons learned. You know, here are our SOPs on how we like to see things structured within the business so that we can work better together. That's worked very well. Uh, going further, uh, you know, we've developed technologies. We have an IoT infrastructure that we wrap around everything that we do. So we know uh, where every pound of wasted food came from so we can tra it, trace it back to the individual store. So there, over time, there's been a deeper integration of technology into what we do. And the purpose there is data. Data is is what's missing today within the wasted food crisis. Nobody really understands when food was was damaged or when that value of freshness was lost. Uh, the result of of the the wasting of food or really the disposal of that food uh, may happen, you know, a week later, and it may be two owners removed from that food product. So going into that data problem, 
uh, also sort of brings that continuity within customers as well. All of our customers buy Driscoll strawberries. Uh, one shopper may buy at Whole Foods and the next week they're buying at Stop and Shop. Um, but really having that that insight across both uh, is is really important. Right, so you gave some elements kind of to, to today. You have, you know, IoT infrastructure. So how does it work now? Like, well, like fast forward to today's solution. Like, like how are you solving this problem? Yeah. Yeah. I, earlier we had talked about this, this idea of, are we a food tech company? Are we an infrastructure company? We, we've been on this journey for so long. I think, uh, and personally for myself in 2000, uh, I think was sort of this first clean tech revolution. It feels like it comes in 10 year cycles. And then 2010, it came again. And, and here we are today, uh, inflation control, right? Just, just passed uh, massive legislation. Um, so when we think about the, what are we as a business, we are protecting the value of food with innovative infrastructure and technology. That, that combination didn't always feel right within the business. We knew that we were taking the right approach but infrastructure, when you talk about spending $70 million to build a renewable energy you know, facility to take wasted food and, and make keep it out of landfills uh, to produce renewable natural gas, to rescue all of the nutrients and get it back into the food cycle, that feels very different than we are using neural nets to identify food that should have been donated and, you know, training neural nets to find date codes on product to then bring that data back into retail. So, you know, what are we as a business? It's been an evolution. Uh, the food waste crisis is is very complex. Uh, the, the drivers behind wasted food are constantly changing. They are in, in and of themselves very complex. But now I'd say most recently with uh, with the backing of a, we have a sponsor backing now. We had an acquisition in uh, mid 21 and you know that with a very large sum of capital has given us the foothold to really bring these things together at scale infrastructure and technology and that's where things started to work that's where the, we're, we're seeing the team and the messaging um you know i think the vision that we had in 2007 uh, took 15 16 years to, to to build but we're seeing it now and i think it's right place right time yeah it's, it's very difficult where you're solving and you know on your website you talk about your customers and it's Kroger, Target, Albertson, CVS. So these, you know, these are like you said, the the top chains and top retailer supermarkets out there. So um you know a lot of uh tech companies they you know they aspire to go through like Y Combinator or Techstars. Um you you went through Target's accelerator, which I assume for what you do, that must have been a perfect match. So talk about that experience and what you learned from that. Uh, fantastic experience. It was, you know, meetings with Brian Cornell, uh, meetings with the executive team. We had been working with Target on our food waste recovery recycling solutions for probably four years. Uh, we went into the tech accelerator, uh, working on some technologies, you know, managing their cold supply chain, uh, fresh vision, using AI to track the metadata around wasted food. So it was an amazing opportunity to, to, to already know targets food waste and, and what gets wasted, uh, and then offer technologies, but then have conversations at the most senior levels of the organization really intelligent people. Target has a 
highly values data, how they run their business. Uh, it's just fantastic. So the feedback that you get on those types of solutions, I think was, was incredible. Um, you know, the cohort, I think that we were in a lot of ideas, different, different approaches, different products, but you kind of see them go through that process as well as uh, within our target accelerator cohort. So uh, fantastic experience. And at what point did you realize, hey, this is you know the right time for the business for the acquisition and investment? The, I'd say the customer journey, when we were working in 2010, it was always zero waste. Getting food waste out of landfills, I think there's been a maturity, not I think, I know that there's been a maturity change in how we think about this problem now. So EPA pyramid used to be, you know, feed people, feed animals, and then, you know, industrial uses, compost, keep it out of landfills. That's great as a starting point, and that and that worked sort of get this industry going. But now we have life cycle analysis, you know, really complex models behind the carbon intensity of what does it take to go get that wasted food and bring it to this facility? And how about the employees that have to drive to your facility? And how much energy are you consuming to produce your product? Are you a net positive energy or, or you're a consumer of energy to, to process this wasted food? And that is a really, that was a big uh, evolution within the industry and, and largely driven by California and uh, CARB. Uh, so the low carbon fuel standard that that CARB has implemented and, uh, the GREET model coming out of Argonne Lab National Laboratories. Um, so now when we think about problems, it's more carbon intensity. So we have a, a, a large negative carbon intensity, which means we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere every ton of food waste that we process because we are avoiding methane emissions from landfills. 30 to 40% of what goes to landfills today is food waste. So uh, we need to keep everything out. We either uh, build more landfills, or we invest in different types of infrastructure. So this is these things coming together, and the 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 approach to the industry, I think, just being more sophisticated, has given us the tailwinds uh, to make this the right time to scale the business. Now, the the company's uh, based in Concord, Mass, right? We are. Uh, we have Concord, Mass. We have operations. Uh, in the entire West Coast, Southeast, Upper Midwest, Northeast, uh, and continuing to expand. How, what's the the current like landscape of food tech or clean tech companies in in the greater Boston area? Is there a rich, robust cluster of companies, or I, th there are definitely companies uh, scaling, growing? Uh, we had, we took some uh, an initial investment from uh, the Fink Family Foundation, which had a specific focus on preventing food waste. Uh, they've also, they were the original backers behind Refed, which has done an amazing job bringing awareness to the problem. Uh, we also have the uh, Food Law Policy Clinic out of Harvard uh, Law School, and uh, led by uh, Emily Broadleaf. Uh, again, just uh, amazing awareness to why do we have uh, legislation supporting date codes or the the uh, the awareness of the Good Samaritan Act on food donation um, 
you know, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff happening here. There are companies uh, up and down the West Coast uh, and across the country. I think everybody is really trying to tackle this this problem. Our position is to really be a platform. The data behind why food gets wasted and then how do you go upstream to correct for those things? Uh, we see that as our position. So really working with companies like Appeal Sciences, they're, they're doing coatings on avocados. You know, we really see them as a potential partner because we're going to get the avocados that maybe don't have Appeal Sciences coatings. Uh, we can see those. We're tracking those with our image-based technology. We can find them. We can help Appeal Sciences maybe pitch that value proposition to their customers. Um, and there's really other technologies out there going upstream, uh, how to make more efficient ordering systems. And, and you know, we have uh, the potential for metadata to better inform those ordering practices uh, upstream or going all the way upstream to Driscoll strawberries. I'm, I'm sure that they, they need to know what strawberries are they producing that are not making its way through the entire supply chain as intended. Now, building a company like you're building is uh, it's difficult and it's it's capital intensive, I would think. So, what advice would you have for entrepreneurs on and that are about to embark on this journey of you know building something that's you know very important, meaningful, but you know capital intensive or you know more of a clean tech or food tech company? Uh, so, the, the capital intensive, like we talked about before. Uh, we really did use that first adopter, really that second adopter with Kroger. Kroger built a 20 plus million dollar facility. I think cutting edge continues to operate to this day. They were the first in California, first in the US. Uh, you know, I don't think that they get enough credit for what they did. But a company like that supporting uh, taking that 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 um, that innovative approach is incredibly important because we did not have the balance sheet to support that type of project. Uh, but even beyond that, from a from a capital intensive, so I you know I don't think that you necessarily have to have the capital to work in this industry. You do need to be creative. Um, I think also part of this, when we think about uh, you know I'll go back to to former CEO of Intel, only the paranoid survive, hmm. and we're constantly paranoid. Like we're we're thinking, are we doing are we doing the best thing we can that we can do, or are we? Are, is there a more creative way to approach this? Uh, and then I'll go to the sign hanging behind you. You know, I think tenacity, what does it say? It's hard to beat a person who never gives up. Right. Uh, plenty of opportunity to give up. Uh, right. There are, there have been times, you know, in our history where, you know, we're two weeks away from not being able to make payroll. This is going back, you know, five, six years. But those are really stressful times. So I think that tenacity part uh, as well, to know that we're working on something bigger than any one of ourselves and to kind of push forward. Because that translates into the sales process too. And we talked about this a little bit earlier where, you know, your relationships through mutual connections and, you know, who do you know, who you do you know, led to your first engagement early adopter. But even still, I would think the um, sales process for this is something that is very, you know, lengthy. So I'll, you know, that was our first customer. I'll go to our, our second customer. It was empathy, listening, but being creative. Uh, you know, on your feet thinking um, and just being innovative enough, but not too innovative that a retailer wouldn't sign up to what we were doing, because I do think you can be too early. That second customer, we were we were learning uh, a tremendous amount. And it really comes down to the individuals at the customer. So I think making those connections. $20 million project. So what what part did you did 
you know, your company actually take on? I mean, it was all of it. Um, wow. So that was we, like it was massive. I was doing, I mean, I, I built my first mass flow, you know, diagrams, first process flow diagrams, energy balance. Uh, the, the proposal that we wrote was a 300 page proposal. I mean, we were told it was from, you know, folks that were building multi-million dollar distribution centers, food manufacturing. So it was the best proposal that they had ever received. Uh, we were the best partner. Uh, we were small, uh, but, you know, we were paranoid. <laughs> we really wanted to to deliver. And we really were being honest with ourselves as as well as, is this the right solution? Is this the right approach? Uh, it was as if it was our own. And so we were uh, we were pretty cautious uh, and held the high bar for ourselves. What you're building is very complex. And I'm sure once it's built, it just doesn't magically work and everything's like rainbows and butterflies. So talk about like situations where like the failure part happens. I, 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 failures, I think if, if we don't have failures, then we're not doing something differentiated enough. We're not pushing ourselves hard enough. Uh, so I do think failures are important. At the time, you know, convincing yourself of that is is borderline impossible, but a, a failure. So even going back to when we first built our first, you know, this behind the grocery store system, um, you know, it kind of worked, but, you know, it wasn't the business model. Our, our At that time, we had taken on a million dollars from angel funding. Uh, we had to abandon the entire prospect of going down that path. That was probably the first failure. Uh, the biggest failure we had, we had, we had just opened up this this facility. Uh, we had never integrated these components before. Nobody in the world had. And so we flipped the switch. We processed our first, you know, uh, probably 10 tons of, of food waste. And, you know, it passes through that first system and it failed. And, <sighs> you know, the, the, the Austrian equipment, you know, that vendor that we had brought in, you know, they said, hey, this is this is what it does. Um, mm. You know, executives kind of looked around and they said, well, OK, well, this is this is your project, uh, you know, at that time, feed resource recovery or divert. Ryan, what are you going to do about it? And we were standing in the lab. Uh, there was probably a group of like 15 squeezed in and we had to put together the action plan. Here's what we're going to do. And it took it took probably two years to really line that plant out, changing equipment, making modifications uh, designing our own software, changing the SCADA system, you know, that HMI for the operators, uh, work procedures. We were, we were writing all of these things. We were doing all of these things, uh, but we became experts. And that's really what makes us different than anybody else in the industry. What's happening now, we did it 10 years ago. And then we were able to build on that and continue to push the envelope and learn more, differentiate ourselves so yeah, failures are tough. I mean, it'll it, it can put you on your your knees, and you know, frankly, it it had. <laughs> um, but you you see through it, you persevere. Like you said on that sign behind you, it's hard to beat a person who never gives up. Uh, you know, we have a fantastic group of people that kind of has that have that same mentality. Well, and I mean, you, I think, uh, hit the nail on the head too. If if you're not, if there's no failure, you're not pushing the envelope hard enough. And when you're pushing it hard enough and you can make it work, you are that far ahead of any competition out there. So the defensibility of what you're building is light years ahead of what anyone else can do. So it, at the long run, yeah, there's trials, tribulations, and pain, but it ends up working out more meaningful for the business long-term. 
Yeah. It, it, when we started our second plant, it was flip the switch and it worked because we mm -hmm. were able to take all of the lessons, bring them over. And we made some innovations. We, we didn't really just stop, but we had we were able to pilot test, innovate there, bring those innovations back. And we brought innovations back. So there's definitely this this idea that you don't stop. Innovation just doesn't stop. It must have been like a uh, bittersweet, meaning you win the project. It's like, whoa, we just won this massive initiative. Whoa, we have to deliver on this massive <laughs> initiative. So how yeah. did you like ramp up your your you know staffing and like how did you like all of a sudden you're like, okay, it's go time. It uh, so I that go time moment, I was invited to present uh, just myself. It was the uh, executive team, engineers. I mean, it was it was uh, it was challenging, but um, yeah. So they approved it at that moment. We were elated, and I do think as a business, if you were to kind of look through our history, very little celebration like this. We're very we've always been very anticlimactic <laughs> as a business. Right. So as yeah. soon as that's signed, it's like it. You know, Time to uh, go to work. <laughs> my wife would say, "Is that exciting?" But no, we're on to now. We have to go make it work. So. Uh, yeah. We never really took the time to celebrate because it was always heads down. Um, we we really looked for experts, people who would, when we interview, one of the most important things, uh, what types of questions is somebody asking? And if somebody's asking really insightful, thoughtful questions, uh, to me, it's it's them taking a step back to understand us, understand the problem. They're inquisitive. Uh, and then is there an element of creative there? Can we solve this problem better together? So we did build uh, a phenomenal team. We we hired a, a gentleman, Al Beers. Uh, he built some of the first anaerobic digestion systems in the country for Anheuser-Busch. He was an employee of theirs. Uh, he delivered multiple facilities. He, we hired him in-house. Uh, we also hired uh, a- How'd you find him? Like it sounds he like he's talking about needle yeah, LinkedIn in a haystack. Yeah, LinkedIn wasn't really a thing too. Yeah, and LinkedIn <laughs> yeah, wasn't. Yeah, too. exactly. <laughs> um, so he was. Uh, we were interviewing engineering firms, uh, and they said, "Well, we have the perfect person that we'd love to have on our engineering team," uh, and we ended up uh, poaching him. Uh, he was looking for that really that next exciting thing to, to I think to top off an amazing career, and uh, he was he he joined us. Uh, we have. Uh, Chris Marlett, uh, who is our today is our VP of Engineering and Construction, comes out of Dow Chemical, just bringing a, a supreme level of engineering rigor and operations uh, mindset that uh, is very rare. Uh, some of the, our early employees have gone on to do just like amazing things. So yeah, we're, we were very lucky to have an incredible team uh, and pull everybody together and, and really work to delivering, I think, an amazing plant for Kroger. Now, as the company continues to scale and grow, I did notice in a recent press release that you hired a bunch of executives, which uh, hiring executives is, it can be a, a challenging thing, right? It's, 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 you know, to hire new VPs or C-level executives, it's, uh, especially when you're hiring multiple, it's, it's, it's something that um, can be challenging. So how'd you go about that process? So we are very diligent in our hiring process. Uh, it doesn't matter what the level of employee is. It's really kind of the same process where we'll do an initial phone interview, you know, we'll have that first meeting, but then we'll go into a project. And if the more senior the person, uh, the bigger the project. I think we've we've had the, you know, the great opportunity of 
you know, contracting with an employee for, for like 30 days so we can work together. Uh, but if we can't do that, you know, we will rely on a project where um, it is an open-ended, very large task. They'll have to take a couple hours. And it's a, absolutely amazing to see what uh, prospective employees come back with. And, and you just know, as soon as you see that, that work product, you, you just say, this is unbelievable. This is what you did for the project. You know, we, we recently had a project get completed. It was like, great. This is what we were hoping you do in the first six months. You just, you just put this thing out and you see the passion yes. come through. And I do yep. think that the opportunity for folks that maybe have been in consulting or different industries, this is the opportunity to build. I do think working with Divert at this point in somebody's career is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We are at the inflection point. And I think when the right people see that, they value that and they want to be a part of that. So hiring at the executive level, I, I strongly agree with what you're saying. If we get it wrong, it is it is very disruptive. Um, it's easier to bring somebody in than to maybe move somebody along from the business. And by the time you move them along, it may be six months because how long does it actually take to know that they're not a great fit? And we really are looking for the great fit, especially at this point when we are uh, scaling as we are. Um, so we're, we're pretty careful about it. I agree with the project-based approach because I, I do the same thing. And granted, it's very different compared to the complexity of what you're building, but it, it shows you everything. It shows interest in terms of level of effort and it shows just how they think and is there going to be alignment there of how they think versus what um you know what you're hoping to hire for so you, it just gives you a clear lens into what the person's capabilities may be so great what are what are uh, three apps you can't live without three apps i can't live without wow um Who's asking? <laughs> um, <laughs> at, at night, so I can I I kind of like you know call my brain. I, I I will still play Angry Birds too or Scrabble to just kind of like zone myself out. Oh. Um, apps I can't live without. Hmm. It's probably my my Gmail app, my G Calendar app, mm -hmm. and Angry Birds. <laughs> that is not the okay. answer you expected. <laughs> well, no. Well, the first two, it's always like uh, my calendar and Gmail. It's like, yes, okay, gotcha. That's so but the lame. Angry Birds, I love, I love, <laughs> I love. Uh, any good podcast or book recommendations that you'd provide? Oh, I think Billion Dollar Loser is such a good, such a great book. I think, um, you know, podcasts A to Z, uh, A Z. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think Andrews and uh, how. I, yeah, how I built this is is fantastic. Planet Money is just that classic that you just can't go without. My we'll we'll listen to Planet Money with my kids in the car. Um, it's just there's just the insights and just the the methodology of how they're thinking through those problems. I think is always interesting. Mm -hmm. And what do you like to do outside of work, other than Angry Birds? Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's my that's my my slightly guilty pleasure, I suppose. Uh, so uh, downhill mountain biking. Uh, this past weekend, we were up at Sugarloaf for the World Cup Enduro Series, which was just oh, wow. uh, fascinating and, and exciting. So, uh, me and some of my my kids will will downhill mountain bike. So uh, that's part of it: fishing, hiking, uh, really being outside, working in the yard. You know, building our pump track for BMX out back is. Um, that's the, that's the current project. Wow. That sounds fun. 
Yeah, it's fun when you have the, the right equipment. H- happy enough to uh, have have my excavator now and 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 my tractor. So yeah, we can uh, we can we can build some some pretty awesome stuff. That's very cool. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background and obviously all the you know great work that you're doing with the Verd and the rest of the team there, and obviously all the great advice. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.